you can follow along in the Uversion app as well. And uh, while you're getting there, we are continuing a series that Cody started last week on the topic of gratitude. And I have to start by correcting something that he said at the beginning last week. He said that he's never started a series before. Um, but I've been upstairs with him as he has started series several times. And so um, I just have to clarify. He, this was his first time starting a series down here. And, uh, you know, I don't, I've never asked him what his bucket list is, but I imagine that towards the top of it was starting a new series on a Sunday morning. And so I'm just, I'm really thankful that I was able to help him with that. That's just one thing off the list. Um, No, but in all seriousness, uh, he started this series last week on the lost art of gratitude. And he talked about really where gratitude begins, where our thankfulness begins. It, It begins by thinking about what it is that God has done for us. You know, he talked about the wrath of God, and that's really what we deserve. God is a holy God. He is, in his character, and his nature, he is holy. And a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. And really what we deserve is the wrath of God poured out on us. But instead, what we get is mercy and compassion poured out on us. The Son of God, come, live, die on the cross, blood poured out, getting what he does not deserve so that we get what we do not deserve. Mercy poured out on us, compassion poured out on us. And that's where our gratitude and thankfulness begins with what God has done for us. And so we're continuing this morning, and now we're going to kind of shift our focus on now that we know what we are to be thankful for, to whom we are to be thankful for, we start to talk about how can we live a life of gratitude. And we start with this. Gratitude is defined as the quality of being thankful, readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness. And really, this should be our attitude towards God, right? Always ready to be thankful for what God has done, a readiness to show appreciation to what God has done and return that kindness and how we love others, we serve him, the things that he calls us to do, we do, shows our appreciation, our thankfulness to him. That should be our attitude. And yet, sadly, we don't really tend to live that way. This world has made us weary, it has made us thankless, and it has killed our gratitude. I like how A.W. Tozer once said it. He said, gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God, and it is one that the poorest of us can make and not be poorer but richer for having made it. And really, gratitude should be a full-time state of mind, a full-time state of life, Each and every day we should be living with gratitude and thankfulness to God for what it is he has done for us. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul kind of reminds us of this. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Paul lays out these commands. And these commands are really a basis for Christian living. And I think that if we look at these commands, I think we would see in them are the key to living a life of gratitude, of thanksgiving. And so we're going to start in verse 16, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and it says this, Rejoice always. There you go. That's the verse, verse 16. Rejoice always. 
And what's interesting about this verse in the Greek New Testament, these two words are flipped. And the emphasis is on the word always. And really to say it's in all things, at all times, always be rejoicing. And this is command number one, rejoice always. And you may be thinking, rejoice always? Like that just seems a little impossible, doesn't it? To always be rejoicing, to always be you know, joyful, to always be thankful. To always, it just doesn't seem like it is very plausible to live a life of rejoicing. And yet, that's what we're called to. We are called to always be rejoicing. But because of our sinful nature, because of our brokenness, we struggle with this and we forget that we have so many reasons to rejoice. And so Paul reminds us that we need to rejoice. As a matter of fact, the thing I love about Paul is no matter Paul's circumstances, he tends to remind people to have joy and to rejoice. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, he's in prison. He's writing this letter in prison and it's called the, you know, the letter of joy. Over and over again in Philippians, he's talking about joy, joy, joy. In Philippians 3.1, he tells the believers, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So in all things, we should be rejoicing. We should have joy. We should have thanksgiving in all things. But yet, it seems like we don't. And why is that? Why don't we rejoice always? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for why we don't rejoice always. I think the first one is that we tend to look at our joy through the lens of our circumstances. We do that, right? Like if our situation is good, if things are all lined up well for us, if our life just seems to be going the way we want it to, if all of our ducks are in a row, then hallelujah, praise God, things are great. But as soon as as our circumstances change, as soon as things get difficult, as soon as life gets tough, as soon as our plan starts to fall apart, as soon as everything starts to go haywire, when things get tough, when life gets crazy, when we're in the midst of trials and storms, we say, I have no reason to be joyful. You see, I think when we get that way, we're missing out on something very important. When it says rejoice always, this is not a superficial joy. This is not a joy that is worldly. This is a supernatural joy that comes only through Christ. This is a supernatural joy that comes through Christ. And if we start to look at things through just the lens of our circumstances, if we look at things through just what is happening in our current state, then we got things out of whack. Thomas Constable says it like this, a Christian's joy does not spring from his circumstances, but from the blessings that are his because he is in Christ. A Christian's joy does not spring from his circumstances, but from the blessings that are his because he is in Christ. I especially love the end of that quote but from the blessings that are his because he is in Christ. And you might be thinking, well, when life is tough, when things are haywire, when things are going bad, what blessings do I have in Christ? Well, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 gives us tons of answers. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Man, what are our blessings in Christ? There's a whole list of them there. You know, chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight given us grace, called us into adoption, into sonship, redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of his sins, the revealing of God's will in our lives, the wisdom to understand God's will in our lives, the sealed mark of the Holy Spirit, all of these blessings, all of these reasons that we have to praise God and to be thankful and to rejoice always. See, here's the thing. You might be asking, so are you saying that I can't ever feel sorrow? I can't ever feel sadness. I can't ever feel frustration. Is that what you're telling me? No, I'm not telling you that. You can be sad. You can be sorrowful. You can feel frustration. But here's the thing. None of the circumstances that you will ever face will negate the joy that you have in Christ. I love how Paul says it when he's describing the servants of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul felt sorrow. Paul felt sadness over things that he saw, but no matter what, it never negated the joy that he had. You know, I think it's interesting. It must have been interesting to be the disciples. You're living this life with Christ, you're following him, he's teaching, he's doing all of these miracles, things, you're, you're learning all these things, you see all these things, but then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about what's coming next. And Jesus starts talking about, my life is coming close to an end, and I'm going to be doing this, and, and the disciples are trying to figure out what is he talking about. And he starts talking to him about why he came. And I like what it says in John sixteen twenty two. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. When he's in the upper, when he's during the Last Supper, when he's sharing with the disciples, he's talking to them over and over again about what's going to happen, but he also shares with them over and over again, you will have joy, your sorrow will turn to joy, you will rejoice, you will rejoice, you will have sorrow, but it will turn to joy. And he tells them there, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will be able to take that joy from you. No circumstance, no circumstances of our life can take away the joy that we have in Christ. And what's interesting is he spends a lot of time telling them, guess what, the things that happened to me are going to happen to you. When the world hates you, remember that they hated me too. 
we know that the apostles, when we get to the book of Acts, are going to go through trials, are going to go through less than ideal circumstances. Jesus tells us this in Luke six twenty two and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revel you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And that's what happens. You look at what happens to the apostles in the book of Acts. They're beat, they're whipped, they're jailed. They go through all of these things, and you look at what happened to them. They all die of martyrdom except for one, and that is not without trying. Over and over again, Paul suffered. Paul suffered trials. Paul suffered many things. But I like how he responds to it in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. He looked at all of his sufferings, and he knew that his sufferings were for the good of the body. His sufferings helped to point people to Jesus. And so... The question is, how are we then to live in our circumstances? Because the truth is, our circumstances are not always going to be ideal. Things aren't always going to be peachy. Things aren't always going to be great. Sometimes we are going to be going through trials. So how do we live in those trials? Well, James reminds us in James chapter 1, 2, and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, or though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So not only should you rejoice no matter what your circumstances is or what they are, you are called to rejoice in your circumstances, in your trials, no matter what they are. Because you know that whatever trial you're going through, whatever situation that you are facing in your life right now, it builds up in you faith and faith that produces steadfastness. And it is a faith that is genuine. It is a faith that is real. It is not a fake faith. It is a real faith because you have gone through the trials. You have been tested and come out approved. Whatever the circumstances we are going through, it doesn't negate our joy, the joy that we have in him. So if it's not our circumstances, what else is it that keeps us from rejoicing? I think sometimes we look for joy in the things of this world. Don't we? We look for joy in the things of this world, and we say these two words, if only. If only. Man, if only I have that house, if only I had that car, if only I had, you know, all that stuff, if only I had that promotion, if only I had that job, if only I had what they have, if only I had this or that, if only I had this, I would be happy. But you know what the thing is about those things? They're delusional. They're temporary. 
the joy found in those things, those worldly things, are here for a second, and then they're gone. Job chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, it says this, Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, the, the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? John says something similar in 1 John two fifteen through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so here's the question I would ask you this morning. If you look around and you see people searching for joy in the things of this world, and you find that the world is constantly turning to all of these things to find joy, and it's just fleeting, it's temporary, and the next thing you know, they're right back to looking for joy again in the things of the world. If you see the world doing that, then why do we go to the same place? Why do we continue to go to the same place that's leaving the world empty? No, we don't search for joy in the things of this world. We know that our joy comes through Christ. And so what do we do? We rejoice always in him. Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 1 Peter 1, 8, I love this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. A joy that cannot be defined, a joy that cannot be explained, a joy that is filled with glory. Man, that's what I want. That's the kind of joy that I want. That is the joy that can only come through Christ. Now we're going to move on to verse 17. It says this, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And this is command number two, pray continually. Now, I always think it's kind of interesting, this verse, pray without ceasing. And it's, it's funny when you listen to people describe, like, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Does that mean that I wake up in the morning and I eat breakfast and then I just start praying the whole day and I don't take a break, I don't stop, I just pray 24 hours straight and then I get up in the morning and I do the same thing over and over again? No, that's not what it means to pray all day without taking a break or stopping. You know, we got to go to work, you know. But here's the thing, you can pray, we'll talk about that in a minute. That's not what it means. What it means is to live a life that you are constantly in prayer. It means that throughout the day, you're constantly going to the Lord in prayer. Throughout the day, whatever your circumstance or circumstances, whatever your situations, whatever you is going on in your life, throughout the day, you take the time to pray. You know, it's not praying continually, saying, I prayed in the morning, I'm good. I don't need to pray anymore. No, it's a life of prayer. We're constantly going before the Lord in prayer. And that should be our desire, to go before the Lord in prayer all the time, to talk with the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord in prayer constantly. That should be what we desire because prayer is a powerful thing. Prayer is a very powerful thing. I love how E.M. Bounds once described it. God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers are deathless. 
The lips that uttered them may be closed to death. The heart that felt them may have ceased to beat, but the prayers live before God, and God's heart is set on them, and prayers outlive the lives of those who uttered them. They outlive a generation, outlive an age, outlive a world. R.A. Torrey says something similar when he says, when the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at an end. That is the power of prayer. That is the power of prayer. And we know that prayer is important. You read throughout the scriptures and you look at all of these people who prayed constantly. Everything they did was just wrapped in prayer. They were constantly in the presence of God in prayer. You see it all through. Look at what we just went through in the story of Moses and all the times he went before the Lord in prayer. But for the sake of this morning, I want to talk about the fact that prayer was an especially important part for the early church. For the early church, everything they did was wrapped and shrouded and covered in prayer. All the way from the beginning in Acts chapter 1, 13 and 14, it says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to it. When choosing the seven in Acts chapter six, when they're trying to decide who are the seven gonna be who take over the ministering to the widows and to the poor, to the orphans, who, who is gonna take over ministering to them so that we can focus on doing the things that we need to do, look at what they focus on in Acts 6, 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It wasn't just the preaching of the gospel, it wasn't just the word, but they also devoted themselves to prayer. And then I absolutely love this. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is in jail. And look what it says the church was doing in Acts 12, 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Prayer is a powerful and important thing. And so I would ask this. If prayer is such an important and powerful thing, if it was such a key part for all the people in Scripture, if it was such an important thing for the early church, why does it seem to be missing from our life? Why does it seem to be missing from our life? And we worry much, we stress much, we're anxious much, and we pray little. We pray little. We try to walk through life on our own power, on our own strength, instead of going before the Lord in prayer. When really what we're called to do is pray continually. Pray continually throughout the day, throughout every single circumstance, through every single situation, good or bad, we pray. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Keep praying. You know, I, I read stories and stuff of, you know, these pastors who, you know, have come before. And 
I read the stories of how prayer was such an important part of their life, and I, I read their stories, and I read what they say about prayer, and my first thought is, man, these people just, they prayed all the time, over and over and over and over again. They prayed, and they did that because they know that prayer is powerful. And so the question I would ask is, do you desire to be in the presence of the Lord in prayer? Is that your desire to go before the Lord in prayer? You can be in the presence of the Lord in prayer because what Christ has done for us, we have access to the Father through prayer. Do we desire that? Does your soul long and ache for that? Is it like the sons of Korah in Psalm 42, 1 and 2? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I hope we have that desire to pray. I hope prayer is not just something we do maybe once or twice a day. I hope that prayer is something we do continually, and I hope we understand just how life-changing prayer is because we need to pray continually. Then we move to command number three in verse 18, the first part of it. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. That's command number three, give thanks in all circumstances. It's such a fitting command after rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. And I think there's a verse that is very fitting for setting the tone of this idea of thanking God, and it's Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that for us who are, in, who are in Christ, we know that no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our situations, no matter what our trials, God is going to work it for our good. Now here's the thing we need to remember. The good that we have in our mind, we don't know ourselves too well sometimes. He knows us. He knows what we need. He knows how to set things for our good. And so in all things, all situations, all circumstances, good or bad, we thank him. We thank him because we know that he is a God who has given us mercy, compassion, grace, and we know that his love is good. Psalm 136.26, Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 106, 1 and 2, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praises? And so, we're to have a thankful spirit, a, a spirit that we are constantly wanting to thank God for what it is he has done for us. So the question now is, what hinders this? What hinders us from having a spirit of thanksgiving? What hinders the spirit of giving God thanks? Well, I think there's a bunch of different reasons, and I'm borrowing some of these words from John MacArthur. They're good. They're, they're true words. The first thing is this, doubt. Doubt. Man, how often does doubt get in the way of thanksgiving? It makes sense, doesn't it? If we doubt that God is as good as he says he is, if we doubt that God is going to take care of our needs, if we doubt that God is going to provide for us, then why would we thank him? If we don't believe that he's going to do anything that he says he's going to, if we don't believe that he's going to do any of the things that he promises us, then why would we thank him? 
doubt gets in the way. Look at, again, where we've just come from and look at the nation of Israel. You know, it's kind of funny. We were talking about it last night. Last night at Boxcar Movie Night, we watched The Prince of Egypt and we're looking at all these things, all the plagues. We look at the, the parting of the Red Sea and how the people cross through it. We see all of these things. And I turn to Randall and we start talking a little bit at the end. And he goes, man, it's hard to believe that in just a little bit of time, these same people are going to be worshiping a golden calf. And I go, what's even worse is that in just a few days, these same people are going to say, it was better to be back in Egypt being slaves. Even though God was providing for them over and over and over again, we let doubt get in the way of thanking God. And we shouldn't because we know that he provides for us what we need. Need, key word there. Matthew six thirty one and 32, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows what we need. We should never doubt his provision in our lives. Another thing I think that keeps us from thanking God that hinders us is desires of the flesh. We mentioned that a little bit ago in talking about searching for joy in the things of this world, but it stands to reason that if our fleshly desires are the center of everything in our lives, if that's what we crave, if that's what we desire, if that's what we live for, and we kind of push Christ out of the center, we're not going to give him thanks because nothing that he gives us is ever going to be enough. Because that's what our flesh does, right? It desires all of these things that it shouldn't, and it desires more and more and more so that no matter what we have, it's never going to be enough. We search after the things of our flesh instead of thanking him. But I love how David says it in Psalm 16. David in Psalm 16 is talking about what's at the center of, of his life, and it says in verse 8 and 9, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Is Christ at the center of your life or is it your fleshly desires? Because if it's your fleshly desires, you're never going to thank him because nothing's ever going to be enough. And then this one is, I'll be honest, this one was kind of hard. A critical spirit. A critical spirit. We struggle with this more than we would care to admit, don't we? Our spirits are critical. Man, there's always something to be angry about, to complain about, to gripe about, to be frustrated about. And we look at what others do and we complain about it. We complain to God about, God, why would you, why would you give this person... Grace, why would you give this person forgiveness? Look at them. We struggle with a critical spirit, and a critical spirit can quickly kill a heart of thanksgiving. Ephesians 4.29 says it like this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And I just flipped these verses around, so if you see a different one on the screen... Because too often we live with this one, Galatians five fourteen and 15. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
we let a critical spirit take over. And how we overcome that is Ephesians 4.29. You see, we have all the reasons to thank God. We have all the reasons in the world to thank God. We have every spiritual blessing that we mentioned earlier. We have all the reasons to thank God. The question is, what is in our heart? What is at the center of our heart? Because what is at the center of our heart comes out of our lips. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. I once heard it this way, garbage in, garbage out. Are we thanking him for his love, his grace, his mercy, his provision in all circumstances, no matter what? He is worthy of our thanks. And then the end of verse 18 says this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I love this because here's the truth. This is not a suggestion that Paul's making here. This isn't an idea. This isn't just a thought. Paul's not saying, hey, um, maybe, you know, just try these things. No, these are commands. These are commands, and we read them, and we say, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't seem like this is plausible, but I would tell you this. It is plausible. These are commands, and to not do these things would be to disobey. No, we are to do all these things. These are the will. This is God's will. This is not the totality of God's will in our life, but this is a part of the will that God has for us. He wants us to always be rejoicing. He wants us to pray continually. He wants us to give him thanks in all circumstances. And all of this is through Jesus Christ. All of this is through Jesus Christ. You're wondering, how in the world can I do all of these things? It's only through Jesus Christ. The ability to rejoice always is to have a joy, again, that is supernatural, and that only comes through Jesus Christ. The ability to go before God at any time in prayer is only because of Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. The ability to give him thanks, we thank him for what he has done for us. All of these things come through Jesus Christ. And because of this, we have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to rejoice always. We have every reason to pray continually. We have every reason to give him thanks. I love how it said in Psalm 118, 28 and 29, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as they do, again, there's one way to experience all of this. One way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one and only way. There is no other way. There is no other options. There's no, if I do these 12 steps, then I can, you know, be able to experience these things. No, there is one way, that is Jesus. And maybe you are here this morning and you have been searching for things or you've been searching for joy in the, the world. You've been looking for things of this world. You've been looking for anything you can find to, to bring you some kind of joy, to bring you some kind of peace, to bring you some kind, ah, just a relief. But it's not in the world. 
you're not going to find it there. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It burns up like kindling, just like that. No, there's only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. And so maybe you are here this morning and you have been feeling God working on your heart, tugging on your heart. Maybe this morning God has been working on you and you're ready to follow him. You're ready to serve him. You're ready to live for him. If that's you, you can do that this morning. And I would love to talk with you about it. I'd love to pray with you about it. Or maybe this morning you've not been rejoicing. Maybe your joy has been misplaced. Maybe your joy has been in circumstances and your circumstances have been less than ideal. And so right now your, your life feels less than ideal because all of your hope, all of your joy has been placed in things of this world. You're not going to find joy there, not true joy. And so maybe you haven't been rejoicing. Maybe your prayer life has been lacking. Your desire to be in the midst of the Lord in prayer has not been there. Maybe your attitude has not been one of thanksgiving. If that's you, this morning you can go before the Lord in prayer and you can lay all those things at his feet. You can do that right where you're sitting. You can grab a brother or sister next to you and ask, hey, will you pray with me? You can come up here. I'd love to pray with you. But here's my challenge to you this morning, and it's not a challenge. This is what Paul tells us to do. This is the command that has been given to us. Live a life of gratitude. Live a life of thanksgiving. Rejoice always because you have all the reasons to rejoice in him. Pray continually throughout the day. Make sure you're lifting up your prayers to God. And give thanks to him in all things. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of all those things. So let's give him those things. And if that's you this morning, if God has been working on your heart or you just need to spend time in prayer, come and talk with me. Pray right where you're at. Pray with somebody around you. But let's do this as we stand together and we sing.